0: morning. Keep your Bible open with you to Ephesians chapter 4, where we're going to be this morning. We are, I'm sad to say, wrapping up our eight-week sermon series on the Reformation this morning. It's been fun to follow some of my colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. They are ramping up for their one-part sermon series on the Reformation this morning. We are bringing an eight-week sermon series to close this morning We have been, if you've been keeping track with us, we have been celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation these last basically two months, and we've been doing it not so that we can sort of revel in church history. That's not been the point. It's not been an eight-week lecture series on the Protestant Reformation. We have been doing this because we want to recover the great insights that animated the Reformation that made the Reformers and those that came in their wake obsessed with God to live lives of extraordinary faith. That's what we've been doing over these last number of weeks. And so we've been looking at the great insights of the Protestant Reformation captured in these five solas, as they're called, of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide. Solus Christus and Soli Deo Gloria. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. And my claim in this sermon series has been that when these five obsessions take hold of our lives, they will cause us, they will animate our lives in a way that will cause us to live a life of extraordinary faith. But from the start, you will remember if you were here on the first Sunday, way back in the beginning of September, I promised that there was going to be another sola I was going to add to the mix, a sixth sola. It was going to be free with the sermon series, but absolutely essential to the sermon series. What is the sixth sola I think it's necessary to add? It is sola ecclesia. Sola is Latin for alone. Ecclesia is Greek for church. The church alone. Very Protestant, and I might add a very biblical truth to hold on to, the church alone. Sadly, and yes, I will say ironically, sadly and ironically, Listen to this. One of the greatest casualties of Protestant Christianity has been the church. Let me say that again. One of the greatest casualties of Protestant Christianity over the last 500 years has been the church. Feel free to tweet that if you'd like. Perhaps you know this already. But Protestants aren't exactly known for having a high view of the church. Rather, Protestants are known for being highly individualistic, spiritual and religious loners with, with a very low view of the church. In fact, Protestantism has the reputation for breeding what you might call, what I like to call, churchless Christianity with churchless Christians, sadly, the statistics seem to back this up. Polster George Barna, for example, did a major study several years ago where he really exposed this phenomenon in Protestant Christianity of churchless Christians and a churchless Christianity, he talked about them as revolutionaries was his very positive term for it. I don't know that I would be nearly so positive, but what he showed was there are about 20 million, what he called, revolutionaries who view themselves as committed to Christ, but not very committed to the church. In their view, the church has been something of a failure, and so they're moving on taking their Christianity, moving on from the church. They still love Jesus, they just don't like the church. 20 million of them, what Barna calls revolutionaries. Other studies, I've referred to these in earlier sermons, even in this sermon series, show that huge percentages of young people who grow up in the church hit college-aged, and leave the church behind. Check it out, though. They don't throw away their spirituality. They take that with them. They just distance themselves from the institutional church or organized religion. They may come back to it, let's say, in their 30s when they get married, and particularly when they have kids. The trend is they come back to the church. But when they do come back to the church, it's not because of a commitment to the church per se, Rather, it's for moral and religious input for their children now. And so, you see, we are living in a world with what has been called post-church Christians. What I like to call more simply churchless Christians. Living in a world of churchless Christians and even churchless Christianity. Why, you may be wondering, why do we have these churchless Christians and this churchless Christianity? And you may be wondering, like, what does that have to do with the Reformation? Is the Reformation to blame for that? I mean, didn't Wilson just say a minute ago that that one of the great casualties of Protestant Christianity has been the church itself? Why do we have these churchless Christians and this churchless Christianity? Part of the explanation for that is, I think, at least cultural. American culture is not very conducive to faithful participation in the life of a local church. Part of the reason for churchless Christianity, hear me, is cultural. Americans, we are a transient bunch of folks. We're always on the move. 12% of the population of America, the United States, some 36 million people each and every year move. They play a massive, we as a culture play a massive game of musical chairs all across the country, 36 million of us each and every year. That's not very conducive to longevity and fidelity in a local church. We're transient. Sadly, we're also consumeristic, aren't we? Think about it. The church isn't the sacred body of Christ, right? That's not the way most people view the church. Rather, they view the church as a provider of religious goods and services. And so you don't give your life and submit yourself to your local church any more than you would give your life or submit yourself to the local Costco or Walmart or Target. You go there for religious goods and services. You go to the church for religious goods and services, like you go to Costco and Walmart and Target for goods and services. You go there to get stuff We're consumeristic culture. But we're also deeply anti-institutional, aren't we, as a culture? There's a deep skepticism in American culture toward big organizations like the federal government. And so we apply that same thing to organized church. So spirituality in our culture is cool. Organized religion, not so cool. There's cultural reasons, you see, why we have a churchless Christianity with churchless Christians. But part of the reason is also historical. I think you need to understand this as well. Evangelical Christianity... Protestant Christianity in North America, evangelical Christianity, listen, has always been energized for the last 100 plus years by what I'll call para-church efforts, if you know that phrase, parachurch organizations and efforts that are comprised, made up of Christians that are intended to come alongside, para, come alongside the church to support and give life to the church. What are some of these organizations? Campus Crusade for Christ, or Crew, what is now called Crew, Navigators, Young Life, Christian Colleges, Seminaries, Religious Organizations, Political Action Groups, Missions Agencies, Thousands of agencies and organizations in American Christianity, many of which are great organizations. They're great parachurch agencies designed to come alongside the life of the church and enrich the life of the church. That's their design and intent. But what has happened, listen, over time, historically speaking, is that they have become the church's life because that's where all the action is at. I remember as a student at Wheaton College, as an undergrad, Wheaton College, a para-church organization, intended to serve the church, intended to equip the church, intended to train Christians to be vital members of the body of Christ globally. It is a para-church effort, and it is a lovely one. I love Wheaton College, but I can tell you, as an undergrad... It would have been possible for me never to darken the door of a church for my four years at Wheaton College and have everything else in my experience in college kind of completely covered, that is to say, the whole church experience captured in my Wheaton College experience. What do I mean? I mean, I had small group there. I had regular worship through chapel. I had discipleship through classes and education. I took communion with my dorm mates and classmates in our dorm regularly. We went on missions trips in the summers. We did service projects through the years. There was mentoring and discipling with faculty and administration. And so you see, you, you could easily come away from that experience saying, why the church when I've got the parish church? Got all the bases covered. Part of the reason for churchless Christianity, though, not just cultural, historical, but part of it, maybe most relevant for some of you in the room this morning, is personal. That is to say, you have been personally hurt by the church. Talking to somebody after the service last week, standing out in the Lake Street entrance right behind us, right out there, and and got into a conversation. He's new to the church, and said, so, oh, it's exciting, and then hope you can kind of plug in. And he just sort of said very candidly and very honestly, we all, I understand and you would have understood if you were having the conversation. Like He just said, I'm kind of tentative and reticent because I have been hurt by the church. I want to read something to you from a millennial who was committed to the church and see if this might sound familiar to you. This millennial Christian writes this, quote, We love Jesus, but are unsure about the church. Despite it being a familiar place, the church has deeply hurt us. To us, the church is often a place of frustration, anger, and disillusionment. While most of us millennials grew up in the church, we now feel alienated because of our differences, though we're written off as arrogant. Careless or idealistic, we are leaving the church, still holding on to the hope of following Jesus. There are personal reasons for a churchless Christianity. Cultural, historical, personal. But a big part of the reason for churchless Christianity, I want to say, is this theological. Theological. What do I mean? I mean, it is possible to misinterpret, to misappropriate, to misapply Reformation teaching or these five solas we've been talking about over the last number of weeks. It is possible to misinterpret all that, misapply all of that in a way that leaves you with a highly individualistic Christianity. To take everything that's been said over the last number of weeks and and apply it to your life in a way that leaves you with a churchless Christianity living a churchless Christian life. Think about it. Think about all that's been said over these last number of weeks. Think about as we try to articulate the heartbeat of Reformation faith. Think about misapplying that in the following way. Listen to this. If scripture alone is your authority, sola scriptura, not a priest, you don't need a priest, you don't need a bishop, you don't need a pastor, you don't need a church or denomination or a catechism to tell you what to believe. If scripture alone is your authority, you got your Bible. And if you can be saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, you don't need to Go to church or receive the Mass to, to get saved, but you're saved by faith and grace in Jesus. And if you can glorify God in whatever you do, as Pastor Todd said, you remember that sermon a couple of weeks ago? Pastor Todd said, glorify God in whatever you do. You don't need to go to church to like go. That's not the only place where you can glorify God, like saying prayers and singing worship songs and listen to a sermon. That's not the only place you can glorify God. You can glorify God wherever in every activity. Then, listen, you can do all of that all by yourself, all alone. You don't need anybody else. You don't need a priest. You don't need a bishop. You don't need the sacraments. You don't need the body of Christ. You don't need the church. All you need is you, maybe a Bible, maybe a comfy chair at Starbucks, maybe a roasted almond latte, venti size, maybe a cool playlist on Spotify, some Christian music, maybe a couple of good sermon podcasts, and that's all you need. You got your Bible, you got Jesus, you got caffeine, you're good to go. What else do you need? Now, I suspect it goes without saying that the Reformers would not be very enthusiastic about that vision of their teaching. I'm tempted to say that all the great Reformers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and B- Butzer, are rolling over in their graves at the thought of a churchless Protestant Christianity. Nothing could have been farther from their intention. In fact, I want to say this. It's going to be a bit provocative. The Protestant reformers had such a robust view of the church that when we hear their robust view of the church as contemporary, modern evangelicals, it sounds, it will sound to many of us, like Catholic teaching. In fact, classic Protestant Christianity would put it this way. If you have God as your father, then you have to have the church as your mother. You can't have the one without the other. The church is not an optional extra for the Christian, for the Reformers. No, they viewed the church, check it out, they viewed the church as our mother, the source of life, nourishment, health, growth, sustenance, everything. You want to name God as your father? You have to embrace the church, the local body of Christ, as your mother. That's classic Protestant teaching. That's very biblical teaching as well. In his classic, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, the most important book, I think, that came out at the time of the Reformation, the most important book in Protestant Christianity for the last 500 years, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, written by John Calvin, he talks about the church as our mother. That's one of his favorite metaphors. The church as our mother. Listen, quote, quote, into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons and daughters, not only that they may be nourished by her help and ministry, as long as they are infants and children, but also that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at at last reach the goal of faith. And then he adds this, quote, for those to whom God is father the church may also be mother calvin here tapping into a rich vein of christian tradition going back centuries at least to the 4th century to a guy named cyprian who famously said in the 4th century the same thing quote this is cyprian a millennium earlier you cannot have god for your father unless you have the church for your mother No churchless Christianity or churchless Christians there. But the church is your mother. It's a very Protestant view of the church. Sola, ecclesia, the church alone is mama. It's what Protestant Christianity teaches as biblical faith. It's biblical faith, not just Protestant faith, biblical faith. Why do I say that? Well, I say it in light of Ephesians chapter 4. Is that not the vision of the church that was sort of articulated for us when when Debbie just read the passage of Scripture for us? Is that not what we find in Ephesians chapter 4? That we cannot live as Christians without the church, that we cannot attain maturity without the church. That we will not attain, as our passage puts it, to mature manhood without the church. That we will not attain to, quote, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ without the church. Without the church, we will remain children rather than grow up into adulthood. Without the church, we will, as our passage says, be tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Without the church, we will not grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. The church is absolutely vital. The church is absolutely necessary. The church is absolutely essential. That's Protestant teaching That's biblical teaching, that the church is necessary. Perhaps it's not enough, though, for me just to say the church is necessary. Let me, in a few minutes here, try to argue why the church is necessary. Try to persuade you that it is necessary. Not just say it like a banner that's unfurled, but argue to persuade and convince you the necessity of the church. In fact, four ways in which the church is necessary four ways in which the church is our mother. Let me lay out the necessity of the church. This is, I believe, Protestant teaching and biblical teaching, the necessity of the church, the necessity of the church as our mother. And let me begin here by simply saying this right at the beginning, that the church is necessary in order to become a Christian. She is our mother. And so linger on that image for a moment. The church is necessary to even become a Christian because the church is our mother. We are given birth and come to faith in Jesus through the seed of the Father, but we do so in the womb of the church. Just as it takes a husband and wife male and female, to bring forth new life. So it takes God the Father and the church, our mother, to bring forth new spiritual life. So that when you step into the church and come into the four walls of a church where the body of believers is gathered, and, and what, you hear the preaching of the good news of the gospel. What God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, taking on human flesh, living a perfect life in your stead and mine, dying on the cross, shedding His blood for the forgiveness of our sins, being raised to newness of life so that we might walk in newness of life, receive the gift of eternal life. When you hear all that preached, and it has a saving effect in your soul and in your life. What's going on there? Well, it's not the church that's saving you. God is the one who's saving you. And he's doing it by his word, through his spirit. But where and by what means did that happen? Answer, in the church, through the church. The womb of the church gave you life. The church is our mother. No one comes to Christ without the body of Christ. The church is our mother. She is necessary in order to become a Christian. The second thing I want to say is that the church is necessary in order to be a Christian, not just become a Christian, but to be a Christian, because she is our mother. And let's face it, we all need mama to remind us of who we are, where we came from, what family we belong to, where we're headed, what we believe, how we should act and not act, all of these things that are essential to being a Christian, all these things that are essential to our identity as Christians. You cannot know those things, or at least not know them well, without the church as your mother. I was recently talking, in fact, just this past week, to someone who was born and raised in Boston and now lives in Philadelphia. And He says that when he goes back to Boston, he so resonates. He says, you you know this expression, he says of, of the Bostonians, these are my people, he says, right? Like, he likes Philadelphia, but these are my people. And when he says that and when we say that kind of thing, what are we saying? We're saying of someone that these are my people, that we share a similar story, we share a similar outlook, share a similar way of life. We have a shared identity. That's what we're saying. What is true for him, talking about Bostonians, I want to say is true for us as Christians. The church is our mother. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so these are our people. We share a similar story. We share a similar outlook. We share a similar way of life. We have a shared identity. We need the church in order to know what it means to be a Christian, our identity. There's this wonderful exchange in the middle of the four gospels between Peter and Jesus. You may be familiar with it, where Jesus probes the disciples, and he asks, and then Peter answers. He says, who do they say I am? And Peter, to Jesus' questioning, says, you are the Christ. He identifies Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. Not ending with the identification of who Jesus is, Jesus turns right around and tells, check it out, Peter, who Peter is, and you are Peter, he says to him, What I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, this is the exact same thing that happens week to week to week in the gathering of the people of God. That as we gather for worship, We declare who God is as the body of Christ, but God reminds us of who we are through the teaching and preaching of his word. He reminds us of who we are. That's what happens as we fellowship and gather together in the body of Christ. The church is our mother, helps us know what it means to be a Christian, who we are, our identity. But thirdly, I want to say this, the church is necessary in order, check it out, to remain a Christian, to go on being a Christian, to stay a Christian, to keep believing as a Christian because she is our mother and she keeps us persevering. I can think back on my life as a child and a young adult, all the times my mom kept me from going sideways. How many thousands of disastrous missteps my mother rescued me from. My mom kept me going, kept me moving in the right direction, despite my best efforts to go in all of the wrong directions. Some of you surely know what I'm talking about, right? Thank the Lord for mama. The church is our mother is like that. Our passage talks about how vulnerable we are as believers. You see that theme in our passage? We are like little children, our passage says, Ephesians 4. We are so susceptible to being, quote, tossed to and fro by waves of culture. The pressures are intense. The temptations always to simply drift With what the world thinks and does rather than what Christ calls us to, the danger, as verse 14 says, is to be carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness in deceitful schemes, like little children. And so we need the church as our mother if we're going to make it. We won't make it without mama keeping us on the straight And narrow, the church is necessary, I want to say, in order to remain as a Christian. But fourthly and lastly, I want to say this the church is necessary in order to grow as a Christian. She's our mother. And so she feeds us, she nourishes us, she mediates life to us. God is ultimately the source of life, but the church is where we find God's life. We find life mediated to us. That's what mothers do with children. They mediate life to their children, so to the church as our mother mediates life to us. Take a look at our passage. You see what it says, verse 7. The church exists, Ephesians 4, verse 7, with this myriad of gifts. So much life-giving potential in the gifts of the body of Christ. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts, and then it goes on on to talk about these gifts and gifted individuals that exist, quote, verse 12, quote, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for here it is, building up of the body of Christ, that is to say, for growth, the church helps us to grow through the gifts of the body. Of course, it's God who causes the growth, but the growth takes place in and through the body, the church. The people, the relationships, the gifts, the community. This is all essential for our lives as Christians. We do life together under the Word. And as we do that, verse 15 says, check it out, we grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. The church is our mother. <laughs> she helps us grow. We will not grow Without her. And so you see these four, what I'll call, necessities of the church. Four reasons why the church is necessary. To become a Christian, to be a Christian, to remain a Christian, to grow a Christian. This is, listen, this is not only biblical, this is classic Protestant Christianity. This is how the Reformers viewed the church. Not churchless Christianity, but a robust view of the church that almost makes us blush. It's so robust. So let me quote again from Calvin here. If you haven't blushed already, these quotes may well cause you to blush. Here I'm quoting from Calvin, book four, section one, paragraph four of his institutes. Check this out. Quote, For there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother, the church, conceives us in her womb, gives us birth, nourishes us at her breast, and lastly, unless she keeps us under her care and guidance until, putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. There is no other way to enter into life than through her as our mother. In fact, Calvin goes so far as to say this check this out. Quote, Away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. It's not a Catholic talking. That is one of the fathers of Protestant Christianity talking. And so Calvin says this with deadly seriousness. Quote, It is always disastrous to leave the church. Pastor Gerald is tempted to quote that in the membership class. Just kidding. Sort of. Sort of. Now seriously, let me ask you. If you were to view the church not as an optional extra, like a kind of a nice add-on to your Christian experience, which may be the way some of you view the church. It's like a cool boost to a Christian life, but if you're rocking as a Christian, you really don't need the church. If you'd view the church not as an optional extra for the Christian life, but as your mother, mama, how would that change your attitude and actions toward the church? What might change How might your life be different? Hopefully some of you are writing that down, small group leaders, because that would make a great conversation this week in your small group. But let me prime the pump with seven ways it might change your life. Just priming the pump. I'm going to go through these quickly. This is not exhaustive. Let me give you seven, I think, practical implications. If church is mama... (laughs) Not optional add-on, not Target and Walmart and Costco. You go there and get some good stuff and hope it works, and if it doesn't work, you go shop somewhere else. But mom, mother, nourish her life, giver, sustainer, sustain her, can't enter into life through, without going through the womb of mom and then feeding off of mom. You'd have viewed the church that way, What might change? Well, here's one thing. If you would have viewed the church as your mother, if we were, we would care about the unity of the church. In John 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayers, it's called, where the shadow of the cross The impending pain and abandonment of Good Friday is bearing down on his righteous soul. The pressure is so intense. He has a prayer he offers to the Father. We have the privilege of listening in on his deathbed prayer, you might say. What does he pray for? At the heart of it, unity. The unity of the church. Quote, John 17, verse 21 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus' heart cry is for the unity of the church because mama shouldn't be chopped up in a thousand pieces. Unity. Unity. And so it ought to be our heart cry as well for the unity of the church. We should not, listen to me, be content with the fractured state of evangelical Christianity. We shouldn't be complacent with that and content with that like, oh, it's kind of cool, it's kind of okay, you know, whatever. We should not be content with that. It should burden us. It should bother us deep in our soul. We should long for the unity of the church. Yes, it's okay to like and appreciate and value and honor and esteem our own tradition our own theological background, our own ways of doing things. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But oh, we ought to long for the unity of the body of Christ. Mother is not chopped up in a thousand pieces. She is and ought to be unified. We ought to care about the unity of the church. We ought to pray for the unity of the church. But secondly, not just pray for the unity of the church. We ought to do this. We ought to practice Christian unity in concrete way. Practice Christian unity in concrete ways. Next month is our mission-minded month, our celebration, as Pastor Gerald said. And, And over the next month in November, you are going to hear Pastor Johnny and others use the word partnerships more times than you will be able to count. Why? Because we believe in practicing Christian unity in concrete ways, not doing solo work, but partnering with other believers, other churches. A couple of weeks ago, I bumped into a fellow area pastor who's been here a long time, and we, we connected in, in Starbucks. I was having an almond, roasted almond latte, and and we just talked about how we got to get together more. Like, like, we said, what a shame that we, as area evangelical pastors who believe in the unity of the church, we, we're not hanging out together. We're not fellowshipping together. We don't even know each other. That is a shame, we said to each other. And it is. It's been something has been on my heart and mind for. Months and months, years in fact, and and finally I'm like, I'm fed up, I am doing something about it. I sent a letter out, I invited a bunch of folks to Calvary, we had some Chinese for lunch, we had a big time. You know what we called it? We called it, I dubbed it, the Ephesian Fellowship. Out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6, there's not Calvary and free church and First Baptist Church and, and Village Church. There is one church, as best as I can tell, from Ephesians 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Over all, in all, and through all, one church. And when we practice Christian unity in concrete ways, like getting together and fellowshipping and partnering and all that kind of stuff, we embody, we reflect that, we show what is true spiritually to the world. It's an amazing thing. So we should practice Christian unity in concrete ways. But here's a third thing that we ought to do that will mark our lives when the church is our mother. Check it out. We will prioritize local church membership. To put it very practically, some of you will show up at four o'clock this afternoon at Calvary for Calvary 101. Belonging to a local church in a deep and meaningful way. That's essential to vital Christianity. is part and parcel of the church as your mother. There are, no doubt, lots of us in the room this morning that would look askance at the practice that has become so popular in modern culture that we call cohabitating. Cohabitating. Two partners get together, and rather than formalizing and going public and solemn vows and committing death do us part to each other, rather, they just sort of move in and secretly use each other. Lots of us in the room look askance at that and not think that was a good idea, but there are at least some of us in the room that have been cohabitating with the local church for years. Not going public with your commitment not exchanging vows, not making promises, not committing your life to a particular local congregation. It doesn't need to be Calvary, but find the local body where you can go public with your commitment, no more cohabitating. That breeds churchless Christians and churchless Christianity. Prioritize local church membership. There's a fourth thing I want to say, and it's this. Church is our mother, we will attend, we will attend regularly to the means of grace. The means of grace, that's the way Protestants talk about the grace-giving things that go on in the life of the church. How the things that go on in the life of the church mediate life, mediate grace. What are those things? Things like baptism, the Lord's Supper. Preaching and teaching the Bible, corporate worship, and prayer. These are the means of grace. That is to say, the grace of God is mediated through these means into our lives. And we should, therefore, attend to the means of grace regularly. Which means, at the very least, we should attend church regularly faithful in attendance even when we don't feel like it did you know statistically that regular church attendance has gone through a dramatic redefinition as you move from my generation gen x to the millennial generation i don't want to be ragging on the millennial generation all the time that is the future of the church but i do want to say this come on don't be clapping just yet you don't even know what i'm gonna say Regular church attendance for millennials is now defined as twice a month. Twice a month. You are shortchanging yourself on the grace of God by not attending regularly to the means of grace in the body of Christ. That's the fourth thing I want to say, attend regularly To the means of grace. The fifth thing I want to say is this, and I'm going to get myself in trouble here. You might want to tweet this. I don't know. If the church is your mother, you will cheerfully submit to the pastoral oversight of the church. It's called in classic Protestantism the discipline of the church, but don't think wooden paddle. Think what goes on mainly as preventative discipline, not corrective discipline, the preventative discipline that happens in a gymnasium when you're getting some exercise, or at a doctor's office when you're getting a checkup. Hebrews 13 verse 17 puts it this way, cheerfully submit to the pastoral oversight of of the church, it puts it this way, Hebrews 13 verse 17, very frank terms, quote, obey your leaders and Submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. When I show up on the day of judgment, Jesus is going to ask me, Did I keep a watch over your soul? Did I know your name and your story and care about your life and your faith? And so Hebrews 13 says, help. Help yourself and help your pastor to do that very thing. Quote, let them Elders and pastors do this with joy and not with groaning. Groaning like, where'd they go? We don't even know them. Where'd they go? I bumped into them at the grocery store. I said, "How you doing?" And I didn't mean, "What are you buying at the grocery store?" I meant, "How are you doing?" Because I haven't seen you for months or maybe years, and the answer is often nine times out of ten, in my experience, they ain't doing. They ain't doing. They've withered by stepping away from mama. They ain't doing. So let them do this with joy, Hebrews 13, 7 says, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. To submit cheerfully to pastoral oversight is to help yourself and help me and us. It's one of the things you do when the church is your mother. Sixthly, very quickly, let me say this the church is our mother. We would give generously of our time, treasure, and talents to the body of Christ. Jesus put it this way where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want your heart to be in the church as mama, put your treasure there. That is, invest your time, invest your talents, your gifts. Invest your treasure, your resources, and there you will find your heart follows. Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, to each one of us has been given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We've each been given gifts, not to be hoarded, not to be hidden, but to be used and to be shared with the body of Christ. Gifts of time, gifts of treasure, gifts of talent. Give generously of your time, your treasure, and your talents to the body of Christ, the church's mother. But seventh and finally, let me say this. When the church is our mother, we will remember, check it out, that Jesus, our Savior, shed his precious blood for one And only one institution. And it's not the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And it's not Wheaton College or Moody Bible Institute. It's not the Chicago Public School System. It's not Crew or Young Life. It's not even the Center for Pastor Theologians. It's not the federal government. It's not the Village of Oak Park. He died for the church. He shed his blood for the church. And so let me add that there is therefore only one institution that will go on forever and ever. The gates of hell will not prevail against this one institution, the church, the body of Christ, our mother. And so you see, sola ecclesia. Church alone, that is not just Protestant Christianity. It's not just a Protestant teaching. And it's not just biblical teaching either, though. It is certainly biblical. No, sola ecclesia, brothers and sisters, is what we see in the heart of Christ. The church alone. Jesus died. For the church alone so let me ask you how precious is the body of Christ how valuable how important how essential is this messy thing and it is messy that we call the church we have the clearest answer we have the only answer we need by simply looking at the life of Christ and what Jesus is doing hanging from that cross. How precious does Christ think the church is as he hangs from the cross. Just a little bit later in the book of Ephesians, if you move your eyes across the page to chapter 5, verse 25 we catch this wonderfully profound little statement that says it all. Quote, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ gave up his life for the body of Christ, for the church. Christ gave his everything for the church. Christ shed his blood for the church. The church is Christ's blood bought bride. And the church, she, brothers and sisters, she is our mother. Where we find nourishment, and sustenance, and where we find life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus. We thank you for the costly sacrifice that purchases our salvation as individuals, but you've not saved us to be individuals, you've saved us into the body of Christ. And as we gather, we are and find ourselves under the care of our church as our mother, life-giving, sustaining, guiding, directing. We bless you forgiving us the body of Christ, forgiving us the church as our mother. And may our hearts reverence and honor the church rightly. And may our lives look sacrificially like your life. As you shed your blood and laid down your life for the church, may we do the same, not as an end in itself, but ultimately That Jesus, your sacrifice would be honored by those who know you and by those who will come to know you through the life and the ministry of the church. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.